Chapter 5 of The Recollections of Rifleman Harris, edited by Henry Curling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It was just at the close of the Battle of Vimiero. The dreadful turmoil and noise of the engagement had hardly subsided, and I began to look into the faces of the men close around me, to see who had escaped the dangers of the hour. Four or five days back I had done the same thing at Rolichia. One feels, indeed, a sort of curiosity to know, after such a scene, who is remaining alive amongst the companions endeared by good conduct, or disliked from bad character, during the hardships of the campaign. I saw that the ranks of the riflemen looked very thin. It seemed to me one half had gone down. We had four companies of the 95th, and were commanded that day by Major Travers. He was a man much liked by the men of the rifles, and indeed, deservedly beloved by all who knew him. He was a tight hand, but a soldier likes that better than a slovenly officer. I had observed him more than once during this day, spurring here and there, keeping the men well up, and apparently in the highest spirits. He could not have enjoyed himself more, I am sure, if he had been at a horse race, or following a good pack of hounds. The battle was just over, a flag of truce had come over from the French. General Kellerman, I think, brought it. We threw ourselves down where we were standing when the fire ceased. A Frenchman lay close beside me. He was dying, and called to me for water, which I understood him to require more from his manner than his words. He pointed to his mouth. I need not say that I got up and gave it him. Whilst I did so, down galloped the major in front, just in the same good spirits he had been all day, plunging along, avoiding with some little difficulty the dead and dying which were strewed about. He was never a very good-looking man, being hard-featured and thin, a hatchet-faced man, as we used to say. But he was a regular good'un, a real English soldier, and that's better than if he had been the handsomest ladies' man in the army. The Major just now disclosed what none of us, I believe, knew before, namely that his head was bold as a coot's, and that he had covered the nakedness of his knob up to the present time by a flowing caxon, which during the heat of the action had somehow been dislodged and was lost. Yet was the Major riding hither and thither, digging the spurs into his horse's flanks, and just as busy as before the firing had ceased. A guinea! he kept crying as he rode. To any man who will find my wig! The men, I remember, notwithstanding the sight of the wounded and dead around them, burst into shouts of laughter at him as he went, and, A guinea to any man who will find my wig, was the saying amongst us long after that affair. Many a man has died in crossing a brook, it is said, who has escaped the broad waves of the Atlantic half a dozen times. The Major had escaped the shot and shell of the enemy in many a hard-fought field, and came off with credit and renown. But it is somewhat singular that Punch and Judy were the individuals who were destined by the fates to cut his thread of life, for his horse was startled one day, as he rode through the streets of Dublin City, by the clatter those worthies made with their sticks in one of their domestic quarrels, and, swerving to one side, that noble soldier was killed. THE FAMILY OF THE COMMONS In the band of the 1st Battalion of the Rifles, we had a father and seven sons of the name of Comins. The elder son, who was called Fluellen, was the best musician of them all, and on the regiment going on service to Portugal, he was made bandmaster. Whilst fighting against Massena, Fluellen Commons, one night, took offence at a man named Cadogan, also belonging to our band, 
and, catching him at advantage, beat him so severely that he left him for dead. The transaction having been seen by some of the soldiery, Flewellyn Common was fearful of the consequences, and, supposing he had committed murder, fled to Marshal Massena's army, where he was received kindly and in consequence of his musical knowledge, promoted to a good situation in the band of one of the French regiments. After a while, however, he made some mistake or other there, and, the French army being no safe place for him any longer, he once more changed service and returned amongst his old companions, the rifles, where he found, to his surprise, Cadogan in the ranks, sound and well again. This species of inconstancy not being approved of by our leaders, he was tried by court-martial and sentenced to be shot. Two or three other men, who had also committed heavy crimes, were under orders at the same time, I recollect, to undergo the same punishment. Colonel Beckwith was at that time our lieutenant-colonel, and, having a great respect for Cummins' father, made application to the Duke of Wellington for a pardon for his son Flewellyn. Accordingly, when he was brought forth amongst the other criminals, it was notified to him that, taking into consideration the interest made by his lieutenant-colonel, he should be forgiven. But the Duke, I understand, desired it to be expressly stated to him that if he ever detected him in that country again, in the garb of a soldier of the British service, nothing should save him from punishment. Comyn, therefore, left Spain without the good wish of a single man in our corps, for he was pretty well known to be altogether a bad subject. Meanwhile, the news had reached his friends in England that he had been shot, and his wife, having quickly found a substitute, was married again, when he thought proper, somewhat tardily, to seek his home. At first the meeting was rather a stormy one, and the neighbours thought that murder would ensue, for Comyn found himself provided not only with the locum tenens, but also with a little baby, neither of whom he could possibly have any great liking for. However, matters were eventually amicably arranged, and Flewellyn Comyn, having made out his claim and satisfied the second husband that he had never had a musket ball in his body, broke up the establishment and took his wife off to Hythe in Kent, where he again enlisted in the 3rd Battalion of the Rifles, and joined them at Shoreham Cliff. In the 3rd Battalion he once more displayed his art, and, from his excellence as a musician, was made master of the band. Not satisfied with his good fortune, he again misconducted himself, and was once more reduced to the ranks. After a while he succeeded in getting exchanged to the 85th Regiment, where he likewise managed to insinuate himself into the good graces of the commanding officer, and, by his musical talents, also once more, into the situation of master of the band. Here he might even have retrieved himself and lived happily, but he began to cut fresh capers, and his ill disposition and drunken conduct were so apparent the moment he got into an easy way of life that it was found it impossible to keep him in the situation, and he was again reduced, and eventually entirely dismissed, as too bad for anything. One of his brothers had, meanwhile, obtained the situation he held in the first battalion of the rifles, and was greatly respected for his good conduct. He was killed, I remember, at Victoria, by a cannonball striking his head from his shoulders. The other five commons, as far as I ever knew, lived and prospered in the service. The old father was eventually discharged and received a pension. What was, however, the ultimate fate of the bad sheep of this flock, Flewellyn Cummin, and whether he ever succeeded in becoming a bandmaster in the service of any other country, or whether he ultimately reached a still more elevated situation, I never heard but should think from all I knew and have related 
that it was not likely he ever came to good. General Napier I remember meeting with General Napier before the Battle of Vimiero. He was then, I think, a major, and the meeting made so great an impression on me that I have never forgotten him. I was posted in a wood the night before the battle, in the front of our army, where two roads crossed each other. The night was gloomy, and I was the very out-sentry of the British army. As I stood on my post, peering into the thick wood around me, I was aware of footsteps approaching, and challenged in a low voice. Receiving no answer, I brought my rifle to the port, and bade the strangers come forward. They were Major Napier, then of the 50th foot, I think and an officer of the rifles. The Major advanced close up to me and looked hard in my face. Be alert here, sentry, said he, for I expect the enemy upon us tonight, and I know not how soon. I was a young soldier then, and the lonely situation I was in, together with the impressive manner in which Major Napier delivered his caution, made a great impression on me, and from that hour I have never forgotten him. Indeed, I kept careful watch all night, listening to the slightest breeze amongst the foliage in expectation of the sudden approach of the french they ventured not however to molest us henry jessop one of my companions in the rifles sank and died of fatigue on this night and i recollect some of our men burying him in the wood at daybreak close to my post during the battle next day i remarked the gallant style in which the fiftieth major napier's regiment came to the charge they dashed upon the enemy like a torrent breaking bounds, and the French, unable even to bear the sight of them, turned and fled. Methinks at this moment I can hear the cheer of the British soldiers in the charge, and the clatter of the Frenchmen's accoutrements, as they turned in an instant and went off, hard as they could run for it. I remember, too, our feeling towards the enemy on that occasion was the north side of friendly, for they had been firing upon us rifles very sharply, greatly outnumbering our skirmishers, and appearing inclined to drive us off the face of the earth. Their lights and grenadiers I, for the first time, particularly remarked on that day. The grenadiers, the seventieth, I think, our men seemed to know well. They were all fine-looking young men, wearing red shoulder knots and tremendous-looking moustaches. As they came swarming upon us, they rained a perfect shower of balls, which we returned quite as sharply. Whenever one of them was knocked over, our men called out, There goes another of Boney's Invincibles! In the main body, immediately in our rear, were the 2nd Battalion 52nd, the 50th, the 2nd Battalion 43rd, and a German corps, whose number I do not remember, besides several other regiments. The whole line seemed annoyed and angered at seeing the rifles outnumbered by the Invincibles, and as we fell back, firing and retiring, galling them handsomely as we did so, the men cried out, as it were with one voice, to charge. Damn them! they roared. Charge! Charge! General Fane, however, restrained their impetuosity. He desired them to stand fast and keep their ground. Don't be too eager, men! he said, as coolly as if we were on a drill parade in old England. I don't want you to advance just yet. Well done, 95th, he called out as he galloped up and down the line. Well done, 43rd, 52nd, and well done all. I'll not forget, if I live, to report your conduct today. They shall hear of it in England, my lads. A man named Brotherwood of the 95th at this moment rushed up to the general and presented him with a green feather, which he had torn out of the cap of a French light infantry soldier he had killed. God bless you, General, he said. Wear this for the sake of the 95th. 
I saw the general take the feather and stick it in his cocked hat. The next minute he gave the word to charge, and down came the whole line through a tremendous fire of cannon and musketry, and dreadful was the slaughter as they rushed onwards. As they came up with us, we sprang to our feet, gave one hearty cheer, and charged along with them, treading over our own dead and wounded, who lay in the front. The 50th were next to us as we went, and I recollect, as I said, the firmness of that regiment in the charge. They appeared like a wall of iron. The enemy turned and fled, the cavalry dashing upon them as they went off. After the day's work was over, while strolling about the field, just upon the spot where this charge had taken place, I remarked a soldier of the 43rd and a French grenadier, both dead and lying close together. They had apparently killed each other at the same moment, for both weapons remained in the bodies of the slain. Brotherwood was lying next to me during a part of this day. He was a Leicestershire man, and was killed afterwards by a cannonball at Vittoria. I remember his death more particularly from the circumstance of that very ball killing three of the company at the same moment, v. Lieutenant Hotwood, Patrick Mahoney, and himself. Brotherwood was amongst the skirmishers with me on this day. He was always a lively fellow, but rather irritable in disposition. Just as the French went to the right about, I remember he damned them furiously, and, all his bullets being gone, he grabbed a razor from his haversack, rammed it down, and fired it after them. During this day, I myself narrowly escaped being killed by our own dragoons, for somehow or other, in the confusion, I fell whilst they were charging, and, the whole squadron thundering past, just missed me as I lay amongst the dead and wounded. Tired and overweighted with my knapsack and all my shoemaking implements, I lay where I had fallen, for a short time, and watched the cavalry as they gained the enemy. I observed a fine, gallant-looking officer leading them on that charge. He was a brave fellow, and bore himself like a hero. With his sword waving in the air, he cheered the men on as he went dashing upon the enemy and hewing and slashing at them in tremendous style. I watched for him as the dragoons came off after that charge, but saw him no more. He had fallen. Fine fellow! His conduct indeed made an impression upon me that I shall never forget, and I was told afterwards that he was a brother of Sir John Eustace. A French soldier was lying beside me at this time. He was badly wounded, and hearing him moan as he lay, after I had done looking at the cavalry, I turned my attention to him, and, getting up, lifted his head and poured some water into his mouth. He was dying fast, but he thanked me in a foreign language, which, although I did not exactly understand, I could easily make out by the look he gave me. Mullins, of the rifles, who stepped up whilst I supported his head, downed me a fool for my pains. "'Better knock out his brains, Harris,' said he. "'He has done us mischief enough, I'll be bound for it, to-day.' After the battle, I strolled about the field in order to see if there was anything to be found worth picking up amongst the dead. The first thing I saw was a three-pronged silver fork, which, as it lay by itself, had most likely been dropped by some person who had been on the lookout before me. A little further on I saw a French soldier sitting against a small rise in the ground or bank. He was wounded in the throat, and appeared very faint, the bosom of his coat being saturated with the blood which had flowed down. By his side lay his cap, and close to that was a bundle containing a quantity of gold and silver crosses, which I concluded he had plundered from some convent or church. He looked the picture of a sacrilegious thief, dying hopelessly and overtaken by divine wrath. I kicked over his cap, which was also full of plunder, but I declined taking anything from him. I felt fearful of incurring the wrath of heaven for the like offence, so I left him and passed on. 
a little further off lay an officer of the 50th regiment i knew him by sight and recognised him as he lay he was quite dead and lying on his back he had been plundered and his clothes were torn open three bullet holes were close together in the pit of his stomach beside him lay an empty pocket-book and his epaulette had been pulled from his shoulder i had moved on but a few paces when i recollected that perhaps the officer's shoes might serve me my own being considerably the worse for wear so i returned again went back pulled one of his shoes off and knelt down on one knee to try it on it was not much better than my own however i determined on the exchange and proceeded to take off its fellow as i did so i was startled by the sharp report of a firelock and at the same moment a bullet whistled close by my head instantly starting up i turned and looked in the direction whence the shot had come there was no person near me in this part of the field the dead and the dying lay thickly all around but nothing else could i see i looked to the priming of my rifle and again turned to the dead officer of the fiftieth it was evident that some plundering scoundrel had taken a shot at me and the fact of his doing so proclaimed him one of the enemy to distinguish him amongst the bodies strewn about was impossible perhaps he might himself be one of the wounded hardly had i effected the exchange put on the dead officer's shoes and resumed my rifle when another shot took place and a second ball whistled past me this time i was ready and turning quickly i saw my man he was just about to squat down behind a small mound about twenty paces from me i took a haphazard shot at him and instantly knocked him over i immediately ran up to him he had fallen on his face and i heaved him over on his back bestrode his body and drew my sword bayonet there was however no occasion for the precaution as he was even then in the agonies of death it was a relief to me to find i had not been mistaken he was a french light infantry man and i therefore took it quite in the way of business he had attempted my life and lost his own it was the fortune of war so stooping down with my sword i cut the green string that sustained his calibash and took a hearty pull to quench my thirst End of chapter five